Visiting, we are in the book of Lamentations, and um, so you can turn there. Uh, this is the second in this series as we go through uh, this this book, and um, I'm going to have the scripture on the screen. We're going to be covering a lot of scripture. We're going to be going pretty fast, so if you're a note taker, uh, you can feel free to just take the notes as they come, and you can follow along on the screen. Um, I, I would also encourage you, if you have a copy of God's Word and you want to follow along there, please do that. But as we talk about uh, God's grace, even in our grief, as we look through the book of Lamentations, we're going to be in chapter 2, and the title of today's message is going to be Responding to Wrath, Rage, or Remorse. Well, the millisecond after Kevin Hines jumped from the Golden Gate Bridge to the bay below, he felt instant regret. Quote, I said to myself, what have I done? I do not want to die. God, please save me. At 34 years old, this suicide jump in September of 2000, uh, he also writes that the moment I hit free fall was instant regret. I recognized that I had made the greatest mistake in my life, and I thought it was too late. Well, Kevin Hines is one of more than a thousand people, unfortunately, that have taken this leap, but only... One of a few, 25 or so, that have been known to survive such a jump. The stories of the survivors are all very similar. All of them immediately regret their decision. This man, uh, Kevin Hines, wrote a book, Cracked But Not Broken, Surviving and Thriving After This Attempt. It says that he did not want to die, he wanted to live. And it was only after he had taken that jump that that was really solidified in his in his heart. And this prayer, in essence, was simply that God would reverse the decision that he had just made, or that at least reverse the consequences of that decision. In Hines' case, God chose to do that, but as we see in Scripture, as we are going to see today, God doesn't always do that. In fact, rarely are the consequences of our choices undone. This was the case for Judah, this was the case for Israel, because they themselves had basically committed spiritual suicide. They were going after other gods, they were following after the ways of the world, and so because of that there was a natural consequence that they were bringing on themselves. And so as we look at Lamentations 2, as we look at God's wrath, yes, God is love, absolutely, but he is also holy. And so as we look at wrath, I, I just want to propose the question to you, how do you deal with this dichotomy? I mean, how do we wrestle through and how do we understand, how do we apply? How does our theology of this situation, of this type of text, how does this apply to our view of God, to our understanding of God? Does your view of God include a place for his righteous wrath? Last week we talked about grace is only amazing because his judgment is real. In these 22 verses, this is a continuation of chapter 1, and we're going to see exactly what that looks like. And I also hope to show you how this lament is going to meet and intersect the cross of Christ. So before we get into God's word, let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, your scripture is true. Let everybody else be found to be a liar. And you claim of yourself that you are a jealous God. You claim of yourself that you are a holy God. 
you claim of yourself that you have righteous and right and good and true and perfect standards of which we do not meet. And so that leaves us at a place where we have to make a decision, where we have to come to grips with how we deal with those two things, your love for the world, for us, your creation, as well as your holiness, your real judgment, your real anger at sin. Help us have a correct view of you, not one that is stilted on one hand or the other, that we might be obedient, worshipful, and our hearts might be tuned to you. And we ask that this morning. In the name of your Son, amen. So if you want to do your own reading, you can read Second Chronicles 36 and following there, and you can see uh, how this section of Lamentations is kind of <clears throat> let out. Forgive me for just a minute. With all the pollen and all the stuff going on, I've got, um, I've got a frog in my throat. So I, I hope to have this lifesaver not totally interrupt the sermon, but we'll see. So as we get into the text, uh, Nick back there is going to jump through with me as I read this, and, and we're going we're gonna to take a commentary view of this as, as before we get into the, the application and, and the main points of today's sermon. So how, again, just like the first verse, this starts off with this exclamatory how, uh, out of pain, remember, Lamentations is a, a cry, a, a woe, and so how the Lord is angry and, and set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of, our, of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. And so think about this text and what this looks like. God is angry. We have to deal with that. I think in our society today and Western Christianity, we, we like to think of, of Jesus as, as always happy all the time, right? He, this is the Jesus who doesn't flip over tables. This is the Jesus who doesn't whip people with cords. This is the Jesus who doesn't turn people out of his house of prayer. But we know in the text that that's not the God we serve. And so we are, in this chapter, confronted with an angry, wrathful God who is equally who he is from the first verse. And so it says the Lord is in his anger set the daughter of Zion. But also remember it's still his daughter. It's still his beloved people. But he, he himself has set them under this cloud. As Michiganders we can relate. But this darkness of this cloud is something meant to be heavy, meant to be felt. He has cast her down from heaven. It reminds me of Satan, how he threw Satan out of heaven. But anyway... I didn't remember his footstool in the day of his anger. Verse 2, the Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He is without mercy in the text. This is not a place that you want to be. This is not the kind of God that you want to fall under. And yet... I think I've belabored this point enough. Our God is still loving even in this text. We're going to see how as we work our way through it. He, he has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all 
around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. He has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt like God was actually opposed to you? That he was actually out to get you? Well, maybe that's where you're at this morning. Or maybe you know somebody who's like that this morning. I want you to see in the, in the text here that there is a group of people that God is after. Now, the Puritans referred to this as the holy hound of heaven. What they meant by that is God is pursuing you with things that are uncomfortable so that you might wake up. And it's imperative for us to see in the text that Jeremiah, as he's writing this, he's talking about how God, the father of this nation, one who has blessed this nation to him now, seems like an enemy. And you also have to understand it's not saying that God is their enemy, but just that it feels like that right now. And you can see why as we continue. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up its places. He has laid its ruins in its stronghold. He has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid ruins in his meeting places. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. In his fierce indignation, he has spurned King and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They have raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. Remember what we talked about last week too. He's, he's saying here that these, these, the regular Jews, it was only the priests and only the high priests that could come into the temple. And what he's saying is here is where there used to be right worship of the Lord, now there is the enemy. You can almost picture them in your mind. The enemy is now standing on this pile of rubble, spear in hand, chanting their victory over a fallen nation. They have absolutely and utterly decimated. And so, yes, it was the Babylonians who were the instrument But rest assured, as Jeremiah says, it was God who held the instrument in his hand, if you will. It says in verse 8, The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying the cause, the rampart and the wall. To lament, they languished together. The Lord determined this. He stretched out his measuring line, his wrath on Jerusalem is no more and is no less than that which is justly deserved. Unlike us, God doesn't have to measure twice, cut once. He measures once and then that's it. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars in verse 9. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. Her prophets find no vision for the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads. They put sackcloth on. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. He says in verse 11, we're going to make a shift here. Okay, so, so Jeremiah is making a shift of what he has recorded and witnessed. And now he's, now he's making a shift to himself personally. And the personal effect of witnessing this kind of calamity has had upon him. In verse 11, he says, my eyes are spent with weeping. 
My stomach churns. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? Without stealing my own thunder, do you know another who brought bread and wine? As they faint like wounded men in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. If you know the history, which you, maybe you don't, that's, that's okay. The Babylonians starved Jerusalem out. Remember, they had these great walls. They had a fortified city. If you remember last week, it was, I think, that we talked about that they were taking great pleasure in. And, and if it wasn't last week, it's maybe because I'm reading through the book of Lamentations, so it'll be in, in chapter 4 then probably, or chapter 5. But as we go through there, they take great pleasure in their city, and they should, right? I mean, it was a fortified stronghold. They starved them out. And so now these kids that were playing in the streets are now fainting because of famine. I can only imagine that Jeremiah would be so sick from weeping. Have any of you ever dealt with a toddler that is so wound up, crying so much that they begin to actually like, I won't do that for those of you who are like, you know, don't do that, Pastor, I'm going to do that too. But have you ever seen that in a child? Now imagine a grown man being so undone by what he is witnessing in the streets of his people, the decimation that the Lord has wrought upon them, that this is the same kind of feeling that he has. Verse 13, what can I say for you? What can I compare to you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken you to, that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as a sea. Who can heal you? That's the question, right? Who can heal them? Verse 14, and this is where I want to get into our first section. So you're going to turn, if you want to, it's going to be on the screen, but if you want to, or if you want to write a footnote, Jeremiah 23. So Jeremiah, the prophet who's writing Lamentations, he also have a, has a prophecy that I want to point us to in verse 14. Uh, Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. He's tickling ears, not Jeremiah. Jeremiah was not doing that. Those other priests and teachers, they were saying peace, peace, where there is no peace, right? So now Jeremiah 23, uh, 14 through 26 says this, but, but in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poisoned water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you filling you up with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who is stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster will come upon you. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest, It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished uh, the intentions of his heart, the intents of his heart. 
In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Am I a God, I, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesied lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own hearts? Now, that is what, in Israel's day, before the destruction, before the Babylonians came in, that's what they were all saying. Now let's continue back to Lamentations. Verse 15, all who pass along the way clap their hands, they hiss. Verse 16, the enemies rail against you, they hiss, they gnash their teeth. Verse 17, the Lord has done what he has purposed. He has carried out his word which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. See, in Isaiah 19 through 20, it says, If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall eat the, the, by the sword. Isaiah 13, 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land of desolation. Ezekiel 22, 31, Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon you. I have consumed them with fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord. Deuteronomy. So here's the point. Lamentations is not just written so that you can say, man, bummer for Israel. Lamentations, specifically, what I want to pull out for you this morning, Lamentations 2 is because of Deuteronomy 4.9, which says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and to your children's children. Hebrews 12, 25 says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they, do not, if they did not escape, I'm sorry, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who were warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Which brings me to the first point. Thank you for sitting through the introduction. The wrath of God is real. And the wrath of God is against sin. And scripture tells us, you are not a good person. Not by yourself, and neither am I. Scripture tells us, we by nature are children of wrath. Scripture tells us that this, that we're reading about limitations, is simply a taste of the wrath that is to come. And, 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 and again, like we talked about last week, this is not the kind of sermon you preach when you want to bring in a bunch of people to your church. The kind of sermon you preach when you want to bring in a bunch of people to your church is, hey, you're okay, I'm okay, it's all okay. But what Scripture tells us is that this world should scream to us, it is not okay. Lamentations screams to us, things are not Okay. Lamentations is meant to, to warn us. Lamentations is meant, as Deuteronomy says, to keep in our soul diligently, lest we forget the things that our eyes have seen. We 
We talked about last week that lament sometimes isn't because you deserve it necessarily, but as things happen because of sin in general, right? But let's not be so foolish as to say, you know, sometimes God brings discipline upon his people. Sometimes people experience wrath because of our own personal sin. And we make light of it. Not in ha-ha, jokey-jokey, but, but, but we tend to not view it the way that God's eye is upon it, the way that he views it. And so in the text of Lamentations, you need to see the depth of the wrath and of the anger that God has had for these people. And that's why I, I showed you in verse 14, I said, okay, now we're going to go to Jeremiah and we're going to see what Jeremiah said, because here's the deal. There are some preachers and teachers out there that you, can, you cannot listen to. If they're not giving you the full counsel of God's word, then, then throw them out. And if that ever stops here, then get rid of me. It is my job, it is their job to warn you, to hold the mirror of God's word up to you and say, without Christ, you are doomed. And much more grievously than this text talks about. Which brings me then to the second point, which is this, and we saw in the text already, verse 10 and verse 13 of chapter 2. This is the silence of surrender. And I want to encourage you with this this morning. You don't have an excuse and you don't have a defense. Because I hear that. I give that. Well, man, you were really, you were really nasty with your kids this week. What was up with that? Well, you don't know the situation. You see, they da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and we justify. Now, whatever it is for you, whatever the sin is for you, there's no excuse. There's no defense. Sin is sin, and that's all there is to it. And I don't care what society says. I don't care what culture says. I don't care what your brothers and sisters say. I don't care what your kids say. I don't care what anybody else in your world says, because God has already spoken. It says in Lamentations 2.10, the elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. Why? Because they have no excuse. They have no defense. They are the elders of Israel, and they allowed this to happen because of their silence in the face of sin. Lamentations 2.13, Jeremiah, what can I say? What can I compare you to? What can I even begin to say that describes this? And he says nothing. We see that other places too. Job. When he came face to face with the holiness of God, when God began to actually question Job, Job said, I put my hands over my mouth. I spoke once, but not again. Romans 3, 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now I am no Jonathan Edwards, not even close. But Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon. He preached a sermon. Perhaps you've heard of it. It is his most famous sermon of all time. Maybe if you already know about Jonathan Edwards, you already know where I'm going with this. So no surprise to you, I am speaking of the, the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You nailed it. I see some of your lips moving. This American theologian, Jonathan Edwards, he preached this to his own congregation in the, in the 1700s during the 
catalyst for this great awakening that happening in America, 1730 through 1755, in his sermon, I would encourage you, you can find a copy of it online, absolutely. Um, in, in, in his sermon, he uses this vivid imagery of hell and of the destruction and of biblical scripture in this, his most famous of all his works. It was still studied by Christian historians today. This sermon uses terms like this. It is the mere will of God, according to Edwards, that keeps the wicked men from being overtaken by the devil and his demons and cast into the furnace of hell, like greedy, hungry lions that see their prey and expect to have it, but are for the present kept back by God's hand. Can you view that imagery? He also says mankind's own attempt to avoid falling into the bottomless gulf of eternal hellfire due to the overwhelming weight and pressure towards hell of our own sin, he says this, it is as insufficient as a spider's web would be to stop a falling stone. Here's the context of it, these 10 considerations, if I can paraphrase his sermon, and I would encourage you to read it. God may cast the wicked man into hell at any given moment. Two, the wicked deserve to be cast into hell. Divine justice does not prevent God from destroying the wicked at any moment. Three, uh, the wicked at this moment suffer under God's condemnation to hell. Four, the wicked on earth at this very moment suffer a sample of the torments of hell. The wicked must not think simply because they have not physically entered into hell that God in whose homes the wicked now reside is not at this very moment as angry with them as he would be with those who are now tormented in hell and who at this very moment fell and the bear the fiercest part of his wrath. Five, at any moment God shall permit him, Satan stands ready to fall upon the wicked and seize them as his own. Six, if it were not, if it were not for God's restraints, in the souls of wicked men, hellish principles reigning would presently kindle and flame out into hellfire of this present age. Six, simply because there is not a visible means of death before them any given moment, the wicked should not feel secure. Eight, simply because it is natural to care for oneself or to think that others may care for them, men should not think themselves safe from God's wrath. Nine, all that wicked men may do to save themselves from hell's pains shall afford them nothing if they continue to reject Christ. And ten, God has never promised to save mankind from hell except for those contained in Christ through the covenant of grace. So unlike those Old Testament prophets that failed, as I was reading through Lamentations 2, God placed it upon my heart to again warn you, beloved, that the wrath of God is real and it is oh so close. And that the silence of surrender shows us that none of us have any excuse or any defense and that should his fury fall. And so that brings us to the third point. What is the response then of the repentant? Well, in Lamentations, it has it in verse 18 and 19. It says, their heart cried to the Lord. A wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. 
Verse 19 says, Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. He goes on, verse 20, Look, he says, Lord, see, with whom have you dealt this way? Should women eat the fruit of their womb and children of their tender care? Should priests and prophets be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. May the young women and the young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. It says in verse 22, You have summoned as into a festival day my terrors on every side, and on the day of the anger of the Lord no one escaped or survived. But... During their exile, Zechariah writes this in 10.6. He says, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back, because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord, their God, and I will answer them. So if you look at the Old Testament, and you see the book of Lamentations, and that is probably the most in the real sense of the word, the most awesome, awe-inspiring section of God's wrath, the decimation of a people. We see that in the New Testament in the cross of Christ. We see God's holiness most clearly in the cross of Christ. We see God's wrath most clearly vividly in the cross of Christ. And the response of those who would be repentant is to then call upon that cross of Christ. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Curses everyone who hangs on a tree. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you feel the weight of this verse this morning? That God's wrath against sin and he made Jesus the pure and spotless lamb. He made him to actually become sin with all of his wrath, all of his indignation, all of his fury poured out upon him upon the cross. That is why the Christ, the Redeemer, had to die. We talked about it this morning before we even began to sing. Do you remember? Romans 3.26 It is to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That too was God's plan. Humans might have been the instruments, but it was God's plan to punish Christ in your place. Matthew 27.46, in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, where is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Similar words to what Jeremiah is penning in Jerusalem in Lamentations. And the answer is, the reason that God 
forsook Christ on the cross, or at least the reason it felt like God was now an enemy to Jesus on the cross, just as it does in limitations, was for you. For your sin. You see, Jesus saves us from more than just sin. He saves us from God. From God's wrath. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So what's the response to the repentant? Call out to Jesus. Confess your sins to God. He already knows them. He already saw them. Cast your hope upon Christ. Remember how we started this? Kevin Hines. Remember what I said about him? He, he jumped. And I said that by his own admission, the moment that he, his feet, you can picture it almost in your mind, the moment his feet leave the safety of that bridge and he feels his weightlessness before the fall, at that instant, he knew there was regret and sorrow and remorse because he knew the decision and the consequence of his decision that he had made. But the wrath of God is as close to you, beloved brother, beloved sister, outside of Christ. The wrath of God is just as close to you as the breath within your lungs. Do not Terry, for the moment your soul leaves the physical body, the moment that you enter through that veil into death, you will feel that remorse. And unlike Kevin Hines, it will be too late. There will be no answer to plea. There will be no going back. Today is the day of your salvation. Do not tarry until tomorrow. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's bow our heads. God, our Father in heaven, it is for your glory that we pray. God, we would ask that you would send your spirit to our hearts to reveal to us the areas of our life that we need to repent God, we pray that we would take sin seriously, that we would take your wrath seriously. God, we ask that instead of, of being silent, that you would help us to claim Christ, to confess our sin, to cast our hope upon him. We recognize that we have no excuse. We recognize that we have no defense we know and believe and we, we, we agree that your standards are right, that your justice is pure, that the decisions you make are good, and that we deserve punishment. And so we ask for mercy. We ask for forgiveness. 
We ask that your will might be done in us. So as we take just a minute, I have a little bit of background noise that Nick is going to bring up. I just want you to spend some time quietly in your own heart with your eyes bowed, or your eyes closed, your heads bowed. I want you to to listen to the Lord. Allow him to probe your heart this morning. And if you need to come forward, if today is the first day that you can have a relationship with Christ Jesus, he's here ready to meet you. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We can never repay that which you have given to us. You tell us in your word that you loved us and gave yourself for us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you, in your mercy and in your grace, you have written sections of Scripture, you have had recorded sections of Scripture like this that remind us just the depth of that which you have saved us from. Please help us to keep the savor of that ever on our lips. Keep our hearts tuned to you that we may never take for granted the glorious gift of the gospel. Let us praise you for it. Pray to you through it. Share it with the world around us. Let us cling to it with every fiber of our soul because there is hope in no other name except for the name of Jesus in whose name we pray, amen.